great to be with you guys today. Uh, two weeks ago, we're back in Iowa from our brother's wedding reception. Of course, we were in Taiwan last week, and I missed being here. It's great to be here. Uh, we came back from Taiwan a little, I got home a little after midnight last night. It is about 3 a.m. in Taiwan right now, so my goal today is simply not to fall asleep during the sermon. Uh, hopefully, that will happen. It'll be odd if I do, so someone may need to come wake me up, and that, that can be your goal, too. If you can stay awake, that would be great for all of us, so that's the goal. Uh, I heard last week, first of all, I want to thank the elders for preaching last week. I did hear that Alex actually sang a line from Frozen, and I have to say I'm a bit troubled by that precedent. Uh, I'm, if you're under the impression that that will start happening on a regular basis, I, I hate to disappoint you, but uh, for the sake of all of us, that will not be happening. I'll just leave that to Alex. Every time he preaches, he can sing a different Frozen song, but uh, that will not be happening today. Instead, you're just left with First Peter. Hopefully that will be enough. So uh, let me pray. Excited to be back with you guys. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of First Peter. We thank you uh, that we have the great privilege of gathering together every week as a church and studying your word together, that we have the opportunity to gather and to sing worship songs, that we can come together and pray corporately, that we can spend time in fellowship encouraging one another. We know that it is a gift to be able to do this. And so, God, we're thankful for that gift, and we pray that we would use that gift well today that we would be good stewards of the time that you have given us, that we would be good stewards of your word, that I would be a faithful steward of the task which you've entrusted to me, which is to preach your word faithfully. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work today, that whatever tiredness we may have, whatever exhaustion we may be feeling, whatever distractions may be in our life right now, that all of those would fade away and that we would hone in on your word. We know every single week what we need more than anything is to hear your voice. And we're praying that's what would happen today. That your spirit would be at work through the preaching of your word. That this body of believers would be encouraged. And ultimately that your son Jesus Christ would be glorified. Father, we thank you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So a little over a month and a half ago now, the Islamic State released, or ISIS released, a video of 30 Ethiopian Christians being killed because of their Christian faith. Some of them were beheaded, some of them were gunned down in cold blood. This sadly, of course, was not the first time such a video has been released, and likely it will not be the last. You may remember that just back in February, the Islamic State released a video of 21 Egyptian Christians being beheaded because of their faith in Christ. You don't need to have seen the videos, and I've not seen them, I've just read about them, to know that the persecution our brothers and sisters around the world face, particularly in the Middle East, is serious. But the fact is that while these particular instances may have garnered more attention from the media, this type of thing happens on a regular basis. According to Open Doors USA, a missions organization committed to serving persecuted Christians around the world, the following happens each month. On average, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Christian churches and properties are destroyed, and 772 acts of violence are committed against Christians. These acts of violence would include things as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages. And all these acts of violence are direct result of faith in Christ. In other words, we're not just saying that 322 Christians were murdered this month. We're not just saying that 772 acts of violence were committed against Christians this month. We're saying that 322 Christians were killed precisely because of their faith in Christ. We're saying that 772 acts of violence were committed against Christians because they professed to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The numbers are perhaps a bit more sobering if you start to break them down on a daily basis. Today, over 10 Christians around the world will be killed 
or martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Approximately seven churches or, or Christian properties will be destroyed today. And around 26 acts of violence will be perpetrated against Christians because of their faith in Christ. Now, given the fact that today is Sunday and that that's the day the church gathers around the world, those numbers are actually higher or likely higher for today since Sunday is a large uh, gathering of Christians and it's much easier for them to be targeted. So my question is, if that's the case, why be a Christian? Why be a Christian? If it means that you might be beheaded, if it means that you might be forced into some sort of imprisonment, that you might be raped, why in the world would you want to follow Jesus? The fact is, though, those questions still exist, even if we're not talking about such dramatic situations. For example, consider the readers of 1 Peter. Considering the, consider the people that Peter is addressing in the book of 1 Peter. For those that Peter is addressing, likely martyrdom was not yet an official government action that was happening. The same could be said for property being destroyed or state-sanctioned violence. None of those things were in place yet. Those were still to come. The suffering of the readers of 1 Peter was far less dramatic than those that many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East face today. And yet, their suffering was just as real. The suffering they faced was the suffering of being pushed to the side. It was the suffering of social ostracism. It was the suffering of economic difficulty because of their faith in Christ. It was the suffering of being treated as exiles and strangers. And so the questions that we asked of the Middle East Christians today, we might ask of the people that Peter is writing to. Why follow Jesus if it means social ostracism? Why follow Christ if it means economic difficulty? Why follow Christ if it makes life more challenging? Or to say it simply, why follow Jesus if it's going to make your life more difficult? Why not just choose a life of ease and comfort? These are questions that we should ask as well. If it's going to make our life more difficult, and in a post-Christian world, no doubt it will. If it will be more difficult for us to follow Christ, then why should we do it? Why should we risk the scorn of our neighbors? Why should we risk having some sort of negative consequence at work because of following Christ? Why do these things? Why suffer for Christ? Why not just choose a life of ease and comfort? Well, 1 Peter 2 answers those questions. This is the reality that the readers of 1 Peter were facing. That following Jesus doesn't make life easier. And I'm guessing that at some level you know that too. That you've experienced difficulty precisely because of your faith in Christ. And the question is, why keep pressing on? Why follow Jesus? Let's again read the passage here because I think that's exactly what Peter is addressing here. He's trying to encourage a group of people that were probably tempted to be discouraged because they were facing suffering. And so this is what he has to say to them. Again, reading the passage that Sam read just a minute ago, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the passage starts in this way. Peter gives a specific command to servants and how they are to respond to their masters. Specifically, what he's doing is he's trying to encourage them that whether you have a wicked master or whether you have a good master, you should respond in the same way and do the right thing. What he's trying to do is encourage them to persevere, even if it means suffering. And then starting in verse 19, he introduces a principle. So he has a specific situation in mind, servants and masters, and then he gets to this larger principle about suffering. And so I think it's helpful for us today actually to start with the principle and then come back to the specific example because most of the passage is concerned with this principle. And the principle that Peter lays out for us is simply this. And and I'll, I'll state it by using the language of 1 Peter. It is a gracious thing or a good thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let me say that again. This is the principle taken directly here from verses 19 and 20. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now I want you to see that's, that's exactly what the scripture is saying. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin are beaten, for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now both verses 19 and 20 tell us that it's a gracious thing when we suffer for doing good because we are mindful of God. Now, the question is, what does that mean it's a gracious thing? We probably know or are familiar with the word gracious, but we don't necessarily use it in this context. The word that's translated there can actually mean grace. It's a grace when we endure. But I think it's actually helpful to look at a couple other translations. In the NIV, it says it's a commendable thing when one endures suffering. The NASB says that it helps us to find favor with God when we endure suffering. The point is that it's good when we suffer for doing what's right. Now, whether you translate it as gracious or commendable or finding favor in God's eyes, the point is that it's a good thing in God's sight when we suffer for doing what's right. Now, that's actually a really bold statement if you think about it. Because most of our lives are devoted to finding ease and comfort. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. This is the American way. Consider even the way that we work towards retirement. What we're trying to do is we're setting ourselves up for a life that is easy and comfortable. This is usually what we head for. Even the way we raise our kids, what we're trying to do is protect them from anything that would be harmful. We try to keep our kids from suffering at every level. We have a little phrase around our house that we like to use, safety mom or safety dad, safety mom to the rescue, do-do-do. And she comes in, or I come in, and we protect our kids from any danger whatsoever. We don't want them to have any suffering. And yet Peter here has the audacity to say that suffering is a good thing. Now how in the world is that possible? Our, Our goal, it seems, is to protect ourselves from any kind of suffering. In fact, this is one of the things that we value most. Let's just make life easy and comfortable. And yet Peter says it's a good or a gracious or commendable thing when one suffers for doing good. How's that possible? Now, before we answer that question, we probably should make a couple of notes here about the type of suffering that Peter's talking about. There's all kinds of suffering that we face in the world. The suffering of illness, the suffering of pain, the suffering of death. That's not necessarily the type of suffering that Peter has in mind here. 
He has a very specific type of suffering in mind. In fact, we could describe it in two ways. First of all, it's suffering for doing the right thing. It's suffering for doing the right thing. Again, look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, you may remember three weeks ago when we started this section, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We said that starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, there's a shift and there's a focus on how we act. Remember, 1 Peter 2, 11, 12 said that we are to abstain from the sinful passions which wage war against our soul and to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then starting last week with the passage the elders preached on, we started to get into some specifics of what that looks like lived out. And, and that's where this is going still. Peter is still going in that direction. But the reality is, if you are going to abstain from sinful passions... And if you are going to keep your conduct honorable amongst non-believers, there will be times where not everyone likes you. That's just the reality. There will be times where you're trying to live out your Christian faith and your employers or your coworkers won't like it. Or someone will treat you unfairly because you refuse to participate in sin. But what Peter is saying is that if you suffer when you do the right thing, this is a good thing. This is commendable in the sight of God. In fact, it is the grace of God. Now, Peter is careful here. He wants us to understand. He's not talking about suffering for doing the wrong thing. He's talking about suffering for doing the right thing. So, if you go out tomorrow and you rob a bank, and they throw you in jail for 10 years, and you endure well while you're in jail, this is not what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about enduring for doing the wrong thing. He's talking about perseverance for doing the right thing. Let me give you a little more practical example. If you're a husband, and I'll, I'll use the language of 1 Peter 3. If you're a husband and you fail to live with your wife in an understanding way, and you treat her harshly, and you don't pray for her, and you don't lead her spiritually, and because of that, there's tension in your marriage, and that leads to suffering in your life, that's not what Peter's talking about. If, however, you do what 1 Peter 3 talks about, and you live with your wife in an understanding way, and you pray for her, and you attempt to lead her spiritually, and for whatever reason she resents you for that, and you suffer in that way, that is what Peter's talking about. He's talking about suffering for doing the right thing, not suffering for doing the wrong thing. When we were in Taiwan this last week, I had the privilege of meeting two new believers in the faith, Richard and Christine. Just a year ago, they were Buddhists, and by a miraculous intervention of the Spirit, God working through my friend Todd, who's a missionary there, and ultimately through his word, they came to trust in Jesus Christ. When that happened, their family was furious. They lived with Richard's parents. Richard's parents threatened to disown them, threatened to throw them out on the street, and said if they go to church, they will no longer be a part of this family. That's exactly what Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter. He's talking about suffering for doing the right thing. For Richard and Christine, what that meant is they followed Christ, and that meant difficulty. Now, God miraculously intervened, their parents lessened, but that's exactly what he's talking about. It's suffering for doing the right thing. So that's, that's one aspect of the suffering that Peter's talking about. The other aspect is this. He's talking about suffering for doing the right thing when we are mindful of God. So two things. One, that we're doing the right thing. Two, that we're mindful of God. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter's talking specifically here about suffering that occurs when you are mindful of God. He's making a distinction. He's not just saying for doing the right thing or doing the good thing, 
but doing the right thing when you are being mindful of God. So let me give you a silly example that will maybe help you to understand the distinction. All right, let's say that you're out walking here on the street on a Sunday, and today is obviously a busy traffic day for the, I guess there's a street fair in town. So you're out here in Terrytown, and you're walking the street on Sunday, and you see a little old lady crossing the street. Now this is the proverbial, you should do the right thing and help her, right? So she's struggling to get across the street, and she's, she's kind of shuffling along, and she has her cane. And she's barely getting across, and now traffic is being held up even longer. It's taking her forever. And so you see her, and you think, well, I should help her. But you're not mindful of God at all. You're just thinking, well, it's the right thing to do, or perhaps you see someone else in line in the traffic that you know, and you think, well, I'll impress them with this. Or, or maybe you think to yourself, well, if I do this, that'll be my good deed for the day. And so you go to help the little old lady cross the street, and as you come up and approach her, she takes her cane and she starts beating you senselessly, right? And pretty soon everybody's getting out of their cars, and now they have their phones out, and they're videoing it, and you become a YouTube sensation. It goes viral. And when you get to work on Monday, everyone is mocking you. Oh, you're that, you're that person who got beat by the old lady in Terrytown. I saw that on the news. That's crazy, right? And so you suffer for this, but you weren't being mindful of God. That's not what Peter has in mind, all right? What he does have in mind is suffering being mindful of God. So let's take the same situation now and say that you have a completely different motivation. When you see the old lady crossing the street, the reason why you want to help her is because you're familiar with the Bible and you know that God has a special special concern for the defenseless and the weak. And you know that you are defenseless and weak and that he rescued you and so you are moved to compassion because of your love for God. And this time you do the same thing and you help her, the same result though, right? And she beats you senselessly and the people come out with their cameras and you're an internet sensation again and you suffer when you go to work. But you're doing it because you're mindful of God. That is what Peter's talking about. Now, I'll admit that example is a bit silly. It lacks some nuance, but that's what we're talking about. There's a difference here. He's making a distinction, right? He's saying it's one thing to suffer for doing good, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering for doing good because you are mindful of God. So let me go back to the example of Richard and Christine in Taiwan again. Let's say that Richard would have made a business decision that his father didn't agree with, even if it was the right decision, and because of that, his parents were going to disown him. That's a different story than what Peter's talking about. What Peter is talking about is suffering because we're mindful of God. So the situation I described, when they decide to follow Christ and they want to go to church and they want to be baptized and they face difficulty because of that, because they're aware of the commands of God and they want to fulfill them, this is what Peter's talking about. He's talking about suffering for doing what's right because you are mindful of God. Here's my question before we go any further. Do you suffer at all because you're doing what's right and because you're mindful of God? If you read the New Testament, it's obvious that there is an expectation. Peter is not addressing the exception here. He's not addressing a few people that will be facing this situation. The expectation, if you read the New Testament, is that there will be suffering and that there will be difficulty if you follow Christ. And so my question is, is there any suffering in your life because you're doing the right thing and because you're mindful of God? Any. Or to say it another way, is there any suffering or difficulty because you are committed to living out the gospel of Jesus Christ? If not, if not, it might be worth asking, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Now perhaps there's an explanation. Perhaps you just, you live and you work and you're in a community that's exceptionally grace-oriented. Maybe everyone you work with is a Christian. Maybe everyone agrees with the Christian lifestyle that you're around. Maybe that's possible. 
I doubt it, given where we live, but maybe, okay? But I think there's another potential explanation which is a bit more concerning. Perhaps the reason why you don't suffer, perhaps the reason why we don't suffer, the reason why I don't suffer, is because we're not really living out the Christian life the way we ought to. Perhaps we're timid. Perhaps we're more influenced by the world than we'd like to think we are. Or perhaps we're just plain hypocritical. But given what the New Testament says, and given the fact that over and over it emphasizes there will be difficulty for those who follow Christ, if there is no difficulty in your life as a direct result of following Jesus, you have to ask the question, why is that the case? Sometimes we have to take a hard look in the mirror and ask, am I really living the Christian life the way I ought to? Now again, maybe there's an explanation. But perhaps the explanation is that we're not living with the passion that we should. A couple weeks ago, I was reading an article. A son was talking about his father. The father's older now. It was obvious that he had a great respect for his father. And one of the things he said that stuck out to me is he said, there was a slight difference between the New Testament and the way his father lived. And what he meant by that is that when he looked at the way the believers were living in the book of Acts, for example, or when he looked at the Gospels, or when he looked at the rest of the New Testament, and he saw the instructions that Paul gave, or he saw the way the Christians lived in Acts, the way his father lived and the way the New Testament described the Christian life, there was a very small difference. Is that true of you? If you go and look at the lives of the believers in the book of Acts, if you go and look at the instructions that Paul or Peter are giving, and then you compare them to the way that you are living, is the difference slight, or is there a large gap? If there's a large gap, perhaps one of the responses to today's passage is that you need to repent. You need to admit that there is something that's not quite right. You need to remind yourself of the glories of the gospel that we'll talk about here in just a minute. And then you need to prepare yourself to suffer. Perhaps the reason why we don't suffer is because we're not living the way we ought to. Now all that to say, we still haven't answered the question, why suffer? We still haven't answered that question. Why should we be willing to suffer? Now truth be known, the New Testament gives multiple, multiple reasons why we should be willing to suffer. The New Testament lays out several benefits of suffering. It increases our character. That's one of the reasons the New Testament gives. It reminds us that we are in desperate need of Him. Oftentimes, we forget that we have a desperate need for God, and it's only suffering that reminds us that we need Him. There's no doubt that suffering better prepares us for eternity, and ultimately it's a part of God's plan for us. All of those things are true. But that's not the tactic that Peter takes in this passage. Instead, what he emphasizes is this. The reason why we should consider it a good thing when we suffer is because it enables us to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, as Christians, our goal is to become more like Jesus. And if Jesus suffered... There's no doubt he did. Then we as Christians, we should want to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. Because we know that the more we follow in his footsteps and the more we become like him, the more our love for him will grow. Because we'll have a greater understanding of what he went through. 
and that we'll be able to identify more with them because this is what we're called to. We are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And so the more we do that, the more we will experience the fellowship of his sufferings and the more we will have an appreciation and a love for him. Now that doesn't negate the other reasons why the New Testament says suffering is a good thing, but it is to say that following the example of Christ is a major benefit and a major reason why suffering is a commendable thing in the sight of God. So what does it mean to follow his example? How did Christ suffer? Well, the rest of this passage lays that out. For one thing, we can say this. He suffered even though he didn't sin. Verse 22. Verse 22 says this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Then verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did not sin. That's an important doctrine in the New Testament, that Christ committed no sin. And because of that, he was able to serve as our substitute. One of the things I found myself talking about regularly with the non-believers in Taiwan is this idea of the great exchange. That at the heart of Christianity is the idea that Jesus takes our sin and bears our punishment on the cross. We're going to talk about that in verse 24. But then he gives us his righteousness, his perfection, his righteousness is credited to our account when we believe in Jesus Christ. And so the idea of Jesus being sinless isn't just kind of like a nice add-on to the New Testament. It's, in, it's absolutely essential to the Christian faith. That's not why Peter's mentioning it here. He's mentioning it to point out that Jesus suffered even though he was perfect. He did not suffer because he did wrong. He did not suffer because he deserved it. The opposite is true. He did nothing wrong. He did not deserve suffering, and yet it still occurred. And if Jesus experienced suffering, should not we expect that we would suffer also? If the master suffered, should we not expect that the servants would suffer also? I think some of us are under the impression that when we suffer, God must love us less. Sometimes we think that if there's suffering in our lives, this is a clear sign that God does not approve of us. And listen, there's no doubt that there may be times where there's suffering in our life that is a direct result of sin. But oftentimes, suffering is not a sign that God hates us. It's actually a sign that he loves us. If the son suffered, if Jesus suffered, we should expect that that would happen to us too. We suffer because God loves us and he wants us to be able to identify and to follow the example that Jesus set for us. Jesus was sinless, and yet he still suffered. And so there may be times where you suffer, not because you've done something wrong, but rather because God loves you, and he wants you to be able to follow in the footsteps of his son. Now, there's something else we can say about the suffering of Jesus, and that's that he suffered at the hands of people and yet did not threaten to get even, but instead entrusted himself to God. Again, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, if you think about the suffering of Christ, his reaction, the more you meditate on the reaction of Christ, it's incredible. The one who created all things and who sustains all things by the power of his word. The one who knows all things. The one who knew all of your days before one of them came to be. The one who knit you together in the mother's womb. Before any of those things happened, he knew us. 
the king of the universe, the sovereign God. And yet, when people mocked him, when they spit on him, when they beat him senselessly, he did not revile or threaten. Now, at any point, he could have called down a legion of angels that would have annihilated all of those who were bold enough to oppose his sovereign reign. And yet, he did not revile, he did not threaten in return. Instead, we're told in verse 23 that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, if you're going to have a theology of suffering, that phrase is crucial. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Listen, we're going to talk about suffering. If we're going to talk about living in the light of difficulty, then you need to understand that this is crucial to being able to do so. You must be willing to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Now keep in mind, the suffering that Peter's talking about today is the suffering that is suffering that happens because you do right and because you're doing it and being mindful of God. And most of that type of suffering will occur at the hands of people. It will be other people who will make your life difficult because of your faith in Christ. It will be other people who mock you. It will be other people who slander you. It will be other people who treat you harmfully. It will be other people who withhold economic benefits because of your faith in Christ. It will be other people who disdain you because of your belief in the gospel. It It will be people that will hurt you. So when that happens, how do you not become bitter? How do you not fill yourself, or how does your heart not fill with hatred? How do you respond to that type of injustice? If you have a coworker who continuously, continually slanders you because of your faith in Christ, how do you not slander in return? If you have a boss who refuses to promote you because of your belief in Christian doctrine, how are you not filled with bitterness? If you have a neighbor, a neighbor who speaks maliciously of you because of your faith in Christ, how do you not speak maliciously in return? If you have a family member who mocks you at every family gathering because of your faith in Christ, how do you not respond back with harshness? If you have a boss who fires you because of your unwillingness to compromise on the gospel, how are you not filled with hatred in those moments? The answer is found in these verses. It's found in the example of Christ. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Here's the reality that all of us cling to as Christians that there will not be one sin that will go unpunished. Every sin will be accounted for. We can be confident of that. Either the offender, him or herself, will pay the punishment, or Christ will have already paid the punishment on the cross. Let's say that you have a coworker who hates you because of your faith in Christ. Maybe at one point you tried to share the gospel. And from that point forward, they try to make your life miserable at work. They slander you to the boss. They undermine every project you undertake. They gossip to you about all of the, uh, to all of your coworkers. They do everything they can to make your life miserable. Here's the confidence you can have: that one day your coworker, the sins that the co- your coworker has committed, those sins will be accounted for. Either your coworker will pay for them their sins themselves, or more hopefully. One day your coworker will repent of their sins and trust Christ, and Christ will have already paid for them on the cross. There will not be one sin that will go unpunished. You can be sure of that. And so where you may be tempted to respond back with a threat, where you may be tempted to revile those who revile you, instead, 
Instead, you are to follow the example of Christ and entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. This is what frees us from bitterness, anger, rage, and hatred. This is what frees us from a lack of forgiveness because we entrust ourselves to the just judge. Now, to flip it the other way, if you're here today and there's bitterness in your heart or if there's anger or hatred or a lack of forgiveness, perhaps it's because you've not fully learned to entrust yourself to the just judge. You want justice now. You think that justice is in your hands. But Jesus is the ultimate example for us. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And because of that, there was no reviling, there was no threatening. Now again, Peter's talking specifically here about suffering that happens because you're doing what's right and being mindful of God. But there's no doubt there are principles here that will apply no matter the situation. Even if your suffering at the hands of other people wasn't a result of your faith, this idea of entrusting yourself to the faithful judge still applies. And so I know that there are some here today who have been holding on to some grudge or some bitterness for years. There's something that happened to you, and I'm not at all saying whatever it is that it wasn't terrible, because maybe it was. But let me encourage you, entrust yourself to the one who will judge justly. There will not be one sin that will be left unpunished. Vengeance is his. Vengeance is his. In fact, that's the exact argument of Romans chapter 12. I'm going to turn there for a second. Keep your finger in 1 Peter. But Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. Listen to what Paul says here under the inspiration of the Spirit, starting in verse 19. He says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The phrase in verse 19 is so important. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Christ is the ultimate example for us. When we suffer, and when we face whatever it may be, whether it's slanderous talk or gossip or or malicious activity, there's a tendency in us to want to be bitter and to want to get revenge on that person now or to threaten them with revenge. And as Christians, as we face more opposition from the culture, there's a tendency in us to demand justice now. But let us remember the example of Jesus Christ. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And whatever it is that you're struggling with, entrust that to him. Now this whole idea of God being the just judge who will one day give an account for all sins or give, make us give an account for all of our sins, I think should, uh, should really force us to examine ourselves closely in a couple of ways. First of all, if you're here today and you're not a believer, and I have no doubt that there are some here today who are not believers, This should sober you, because one day you will have to give an account to God. There will not be one sin that will be left unpunished. And if you've not repented of your sins and trusted Christ, you will pay the ultimate punishment in eternity separated from Him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you, know that the just judge will have His say. Vengeance is His, and He will repay. And I would plead with you to repent of your sins and trust Christ today. Do not wait. If you're a believer, 
this idea of God being the just judge, I think it enables you to be free from bitterness, anger, and a lack of forgiveness. Listen, in light of Jesus' example, if there's some issue you're dealing with of bitterness or rage or unforgiveness, I would encourage you to deal with that today. Don't wait. Follow the example of Christ. Instead, entrust yourself to the just judge. Christ is meant to be an example for us to follow in suffering. It's good for us to remember that he suffered when he did no wrong. Because there may be times where we suffer for doing the right thing. It's good for us to see the example of how he suffered and that he did not revile or threaten, but instead entrusted himself to the judge. But that said, ultimately we have to say this. While we are called to follow the example of Christ, there are ways in which Christ's suffering is utterly unique. And in fact, that's how Peter ends this passage. He reminds us, although yes, we're called to follow the example of Christ, Jesus is different. In fact, look at verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's not an accident that he uses tree there instead of cross. In the Old Testament, the tree the one who was hung on a tree was cursed. In other words, Jesus became the curse for us. He took the curse. He bore our sins so that we might be free. And this is where the suffering of Christ and our suffering make a sharp departure. Yes, there are ways we are called to follow the example of Christ, but he is utterly unique. He's unique. Only Christ could bear our sins on the tree. Only Christ could put sin to death. Only Christ could make it so we could live for righteousness. Only Christ could heal our spiritual wounds. Only Christ could bring us back to the fold of God. Only Christ could be said to be the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We are called to suffer like Christ. That's true. But only Christ could take the punishment for sin. And so in that way, we would say his suffering was unique. He was the only one who was fully God and fully man, the only one who lived a perfect life. He was uniquely qualified to die a substitutional death on the cross. He bore our sins on the tree. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the heart of the Christian faith. At this point, Peter has moved beyond the idea that we should follow the example of Christ, and he seems to be enthralled with who Jesus was. He is worshiping at this point. He was giving an example earlier. This is the example to follow, but now he's just worshiping. And I think this is a model for us. This is a model for us, that we should be filled with worship. When we read this passage, we should not go home today and think, well, I just need to be a better person, or I need to do that, or I need to suffer more, or whatever the case is. No, the response we should have to this passage is one of worship. And as we worship, that is what will motivate us to be willing to suffer. Peter is so enthralled with the greatness of Christ that this is why he's willing to suffer. He sees that Christ bore our sins on the tree, that he rescued us, that he healed us, that he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, and this is what motivates us. Listen, we can talk all day about suffering for what's right, and I can implore you to entrust yourself to the just judge, and we can encourage one another to live in such a way that suffering might be a possibility, and all of that is well and good, but the heart of Christianity is that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. That is the heart of Christianity, and if you miss that, you miss the entire point. 
Listen, if you hear me today and you go home and you think, oh, I just need to suffer more, and you don't hear this part about Jesus being our substitute on the cross, then you have missed the point of the entire Bible. And you've certainly missed the point of what I'm trying to say today. Because Jesus dying on the cross is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Understanding that he died as our substitute, this is what motivates us to live differently. This is what motivates us to be willing to suffer. Because we understand that he is our substitute. This is the message of the entire Bible. By the way, Peter understands that. Six times in verses 23 to 25, he quotes Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, probably the greatest prophetic passage of the Old Testament. The suffering servant. Isaiah prophesies of this one who will bear the iniquities of the people. And by quoting Isaiah 53 over and over, Peter is clearly making the point. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who will bear the iniquity, it's Jesus. All of the Bible, this is the message that Christ is the one who rescues people from their sin. If you miss that, if you miss that he died on the cross for sin, if you miss that this is at the heart of Christianity, the substitutionary atonement, Christ dying on the cross for our sin, if you miss that part of the Bible, you miss the entire message. Recently, I stumbled across the website of a church in this area, right here in Westchester County. I won't say what the church is, but you may have driven by it before. And on their website, they had a page that laid out their beliefs. And this is what they had to say about Jesus. I'm just quoting here from their website. Now you listen and see if there's anything missing. All right, this is their, their doctrinal beliefs. In Jesus Christ, God has come to us, shared our common lot, and taught us to love one another. Jesus Christ calls us into the church to be disciples in the service of the human family, to transmit God's commandments from generation to generation, to be baptized as a mark of discipleship and forgiveness of sin, and to share in the Last Supper as a remembrance forever of God's goodness and mercy. Now, do you notice what's missing? Maybe, maybe you hear that and you think, oh, there's nothing wrong. What's missing from that statement is there's nothing of the cross. There's nothing of Jesus dying on the cross and being raised three days later. There's nothing of Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. Now, maybe you think I'm just cherry-picking from this website, but rest assured, given the rest of the website, I feel confident that was an intentional choice to leave out the cross. But if you leave out the cross in the empty grave, you are missing the point of Christianity. You are preaching a false gospel. Christ bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and you can never get away from that. Yes, we're to follow the example of Christ, but we also need to acknowledge he is utterly unique. That's why we worship him. That's why we want to follow in his footsteps, because he is not like us. Only Christ could bear our sins on the tree. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And maybe I'm particularly aware of every other religion in the world because we just returned home from Taiwan. And person after person we talked to asked this question, well, what's different about Christianity than other religions? And the answer is that Christ bore our sins on the tree. No other religion can explain how we could ever stand in the presence of a holy and just God. Christianity's answer is Jesus paid the punishment for us. This is what motivates us to live differently. This is what motivates us to suffer. What is the answer to the question, why suffer? Well, there's lots of answers in the New Testament, but Peter's answer is because we're called to follow the example of Christ. We want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And because of that, Peter is able to say with confidence that it's a good thing when mindful of God, one suffers while, or endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's the principle in this passage. Now, that said, we have to remember that's not the way the passage started. 
right? It started differently. It wasn't starting with a discussion of suffering. It was starting with a discussion of servants and masters. So let's go back to verse 18 here. Verse 18, he says this. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's verse 13. Just kidding. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Verse 18. I'll blame that on the jet lag. I get one free pass, I think. I'll blame that on that. So verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, when we were preaching through the book of Colossians, we talked at length about the relationships between servants and masters and slaves and masters. And we explained kind of the complexity of that teaching in the New Testament. So I won't go through all of that. But by way of recap, let me say this. The New Testament, I'm convinced, does not condone slavery. The writers of the New Testament do not think that slavery was a good thing. In fact, I can make the case from the New Testament that the New Testament authors, being inspired by the Spirit of God, did not see slavery as good, but they saw it as an evil. But the reality is that the New Testament church was small and had no hope of overthrowing a massive institution like slavery at the time. And because the New Testament writers were convinced that gospel living affected everyday life, if they wanted to address everyday life, they had to address slaves and masters. This was a huge part of the society at the time. And so while they may not have condoned it, they did recognize the reality of it. And that's why the New Testament authors address slaves and masters. So don't mistake this for the New Testament condoning slavery. That's not what's happening here. And what's happening here is that Peter, like other New Testament authors, realizes that there's an everyday aspect of Christianity and it involves things like the relationship between servant and master. Now in this culture, given what we know about the the society at the time and the pressures that Christians were facing, it's likely that servants or slaves were being mistreated precisely because of their faith in Christ. Now we're not sure what that mistreatment looked like. Maybe it was the money was being withheld from them if they were paid. Or maybe it meant that they were facing some type of physical beatings or or whatever the case is. But the point is, because they were servants, some were suffering unjustly. And what Peter's doing is encouraging them. He's saying, keep doing the right thing. Even if you have a wicked master, keep doing the right thing. Peter was convinced that the gospel should transform everyday life. Remember, again, the words that introduced this section. Abstain from the sinful passions which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, last week the elders talked about, well, that means there's certain ways we interact with the government and think about authority. That's one of the ways we keep our conduct honorable. And now he's giving another example. He's saying another way we keep our conduct honorable is if you are a servant to make sure you do the right thing even if you're being treated unfairly. And the reason to do this is because they fear God. The phrase that's translated in verse 18, with all respect, is literally with all fear. And with all fear is almost certainly a reference to God. And so because they fear God, this is why they are to submit to their earthly masters. Now the modern day equivalent of this relationship might be something like the employer and the employee. And so here's what we might say today. Just as a specific outworking of our principle. Whether you have a good and gentle boss or a wicked and evil boss, do the right thing. Submit to the authority that God has placed in your life. Provided that they're not asking you to do something contrary to Scripture. And do so because you fear God and because you're aware of God's goodness. And with the knowledge that if you do suffer for doing what's right, it's a good thing, a gracious thing in the sight of God's eyes. Why? Because it enables you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And it is that principle that will allow you to suffer well. 
whether it's at the hands of an unjust boss or at the blade of the executioner's sword. Whatever difficulty may come your way, the idea that we get to follow in the footsteps of Christ, and that's a gracious thing in God's eyes, this is what enables us to keep pressing down the road. And I'll say this. As we grow in our understanding and love of who Jesus is, as we understand verses 24 and 25 that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, I'm convinced that we will only have a greater desire to go down the path of following Jesus no matter how hard it will be. And so to prepare yourself for suffering, I'd say this. Remind yourself of the greatness of Christ. Peter suffered well. He's not talking here as some sort of sideline coach, some sort of Monday morning quarterback, just critiquing people for not suffering. Peter himself suffered because of his faith in Christ. And the reason he did so is because he loved his Savior. The same should be true for us. same should be true for us. Listen, if right now there's no suffering in your life because of your faith, my encouragement to you would be to repent. To recognize where your life has a difference between the way the New Testament describes Christianity and the way you live. To repent of that and then prepare yourself for suffering. Prepare yourself for suffering. Remind yourself that suffering is a good thing in the sight of God when it's done because we're doing the right thing and we're being mindful of God. And then rejoice when that suffering happens. Rejoice because you get to follow in the footsteps of the Savior. The same Savior who bore our sins on the tree. Listen, living on this earth is not easy. Suffering is inevitable. But Christ is worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to be able to reflect on your goodness, to reflect on the fact that you died as our substitute. And that in turn, we get to live for you, even if that means suffering. In fact, suffering is a gracious thing. It's a grace of yours. Help us to see it that way. Help us to live with a reckless abandon for you. Help us to see you as more valuable than anything else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.